Shallow words bring nothing new. Shallow words bring nothing new. It could suck. Everybody, this is Will here. Uh, another episode of Superstructure, the podcast where we hate Marxism from the left. All right, calm, calm down. <laughs> Will woke up this morning like just like on a joke rampage. Just like it's like a really nice high key parody register. Just like I want him to just come on stage like Phyllis Diller and tell like <laughs> seven Jacobin jokes in a row. Just like <laughs> he was shot out of a cannon this morning. <laughs> I just had this anger this morning. Anyway, He's glowing. Um, is what's happening. Um, and then I'll feel yeah. guilty. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so for this episode today, I guess first I should introduce everybody, right? So, yeah. Who, the, who uh, the hell are we? We have, we have Natty Smith. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty fucking good. Um, and Max, uh, <laughs> we have <laughs> we have Max Seho here. Max, how are you doing? Oh, uh, it's fine. I have to prep for a class on Neoplatonism in like an hour and a half, so better get this fucking podcast over with. Max really loves Neoplatonism. <laughs> this podcast has been kind of an interesting exploration, I think, for the three of us of this sort of synthesis we seem to be feeling our way through and expanding of modern monetary theory with this sort of aesthetic critique of uh, Marxism and intervention and critical theory discourses and, you know, trying to tie a lot of things together. Um, But I actually wanted for this episode for us to take a step back and maybe regroup around MMT. It's sort of like an inside joke almost that we brand ourselves as an MMT podcast. Um, and we do, I think, talk about MMT by association, by analogy. But um, for the most part, MMT doesn't directly come up. And you're not going to hear like us do balance sheet exercises or, you know, explain how treasury auctions work or like any of that kind of stuff. Um, but having said that, We are getting to a point where I think that it's good for us to circle back and just like explain why we do associate ourselves with MMT uh, and specifically why we're intervening uh, in Marxist discourses. Why don't we just call ourselves Marxists uh, if we're anti-capitalist? I mean, there's plenty of Marxist tendencies that are not our kind of caricature of Marxism embodied by Jacobin. And even then... The, the worst parts of Jacobin that even like there's yeah. like Jacobin and there's Jacobin. Yeah, there's right. There's <laughs> there's people who shop things around and ultimately land on Jacobin. And then there's people who write for Jacobin. To paraphrase <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, someone who, you know, was affiliated with Jacobin. We're going to be harsh with Jacobin as a structure, but you know, some people who are affiliate them, we're, we try and be delicate with them. What do you mean try? I am just a very, very soft body. I'm always delicate with everybody. I have no inner... I, I, I stopped being Dasha and became I don't know who there. I don't... <laughs> you just became yourself. Like a Dasha, Liz, Franchick hybrid. <laughs> Speaking of, I just have to make the point. Whatever happened to Truanon? I feel like they just disappeared. They're just kind of in outer space, I think, a little bit. Yeah, half the time. I think they gave up on the podcast after our episode where we made fun of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're on the case. 
searching Jeffrey Epstein files. It's a lot of background research to do for for dialectical materialism. Also, I'm sure they're at the forefront of uh, abolishing, you know, police and prosecutors, considering they cheer them on all the time. Um, <laughs> we need prisons because where else are we going to put all the capital? <laughs> <laughs> is that Vivek Shiver on the other line? Um, <laughs> Vivek Shiver is supposed to call in a little bit later with a reading series that, that we have from Jacobin's very own ABCs of Socialism. But yeah, we don't want to reduce... Even, frankly, any, like, Jacobin staff member to, like, conflate that with Jacobin's editorial voice, which is not reducible to any one person who writes for it, and is certainly not reducible to any freelance writer. You know, I mean, Jacobin publishes so much. A lot of it's good. Like, internationally, they put out just, like, some of the more just, like, general left journalism so they kind of even keep track, because there's just not that much about what's going on. But then also write at other times, like... Seth Ackerman's fuck buddy or something comes in to, I don't know, remind everybody that movies are disgusting semen with feelings. I don't know. Like, I don't, right. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely leaving that in. And I'll say we've hedged enough. Um, anyone who wants to, yeah, anyone who wants to, well, we're nice to you if you're good. If you're not, we're not going to be nice to you. Also, just be good and just stop associating with bad people. Anyway, carry on. Um, you're probably anxious trying to figure out what the fuck our perspective actually is in order to avoid getting on our bad side. So we're going to try to flesh that out a little bit. But also, you should be on your toes. Yeah, absolutely. Be on your toes. Yeah. That's what I think is like kind of comes out of that like voice, which is like kind of we joke like that ISO trot education. But I was thinking about this today, like like that whole thing, too, about, you know, to be unified and come together. We can't we got to pick our battles and not fight too much within the left. And it is this very like organizational thing that kind of rejects rebellion and pushing the envelope and. You know, I know people joke, like you were saying, though, Will, the other day, like, avant-garde, like, that part of being on the left is, like, yeah, you don't just want to knee-jerk reject everything, but you do want to, like, have room to be punk and fuck around, you know, and fuck people up and shit, and there's, like, a resistance to that within that voice sometimes that I think is kind of where I have some resistance to that. Yeah, totally, and th and this is something that, um, that I think we'll see in this episode as we talk about Marxism more really plays out uh, implicitly and then in all kinds of manifestations, like symptomatically, in the structure of Marxist political economy in the first place. Because uh, what we'll see, um, especially in a reading from Vivek Chibber, this is from the ABCs of Socialism, titled, Why Do Socialists Talk So Much About Workers?, is that in Marxist political economy, there is an agent who can stop capital and it is only workers at the point of production and only doing a specific thing, which is striking. So because political economy is contracted around this capital-labor relation, what's implicit in that, which we've kind of teased out in earlier episodes talking about like tracing the logics of like familial abuse, you know, in some essays by Amber Lee Frost and talking about the Red Scare podcast, is there's very much this logic of like, Yes, the working class might be problematic or the left, right, which is sort of there's the slippage between the left and the working class um, might be problematic, but it has a historical mission that means that we have nobody else, right? And therefore, like, we're, we're in a family, which is funny because Marxists will often 
compare MMT to cultists or something, but like that, that is literally cult logic is that there's no outside of the left. And by the left, we mean like Jacobin and DSA and a, a very particular set of institutions that have claimed a historical mantle of representing the working class as a historical agent. That means that there's no outside of them. And when there's no outside, you're willing to put up with a lot and you're willing to compromise on your boundaries, compromise on your own happiness and your own needs because you feel like people are counting on me to not rock the boat. And we'll see that play out in in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and before I, I wanted to start with saying that I think at some point uh, in my life, I'm going to write uh, a three volume tome called Brooklyn, a critique of media practice. Um, and i'll have you know that i also just tweeted that joke so check the tl for that everyone. what are the volumes um, named one two and three. Well, volume one volume two and volume three obviously <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah there's only three things really? in yeah everything works in threes it's the dialectic it's how publishing works it's just... but no as an aside from that i think you know it's important to note like all the places in which we're intervening into and do the complicated hedging around, um, you know, different alliances and things like that. But I also just want to like, just, you know, smash all that bullshit for a second to say (laughs) that um, the reason why I think we think we have something to say and something to add to the shape of this discourse and, and to a sort of ongoing project of, of left praxis is because we have MMT, right? And it, it is as simple as that. And I hope we can unspool this more so throughout the episode. But, um, you know, whether one goes to the roots of, of a sort of left political economy, whether that's in Hegel and in Marx and you know, if you know this podcast, you know we will go into that at some point. But um, the point being that we are going to insist that um, understandings of money that in any way start from a barter story or any primordial non-monetary mediation are fundamentally an incorrect starting point. And what that means is that All theorizations that come thereafter are built upon a shaky ontological foundation. And so, you know, it's not enough to just say that, but it's important to highlight it, I think, that we try to unspool in all the, like, the analogical matrix in all these different, through all these different rabbit holes, whether it's Red Scare or Truanon or a critique of red-brown reductionism or you know, Giorgio Agamben, there's so many different ways to do this. But a a key kernel, uh, one could call it perhaps like, a key like rationalist uh, starting point that we have is this political economic analysis, right? It, It is based in some semblance of an identification of the way reality works. And I don't think we should run away from that necessarily, which is also to say that it's not one way in which reality works. Um, it's an it's an analogical matrix by which there are logics that persist. And so I guess I just wanted to start with that and hear 
y'all's reflection on that because I think I think what I've been noticing just in watching discussions sort of in the wake of you know this podcast and 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 MMT becoming more popularized especially in more hardcore left discourses not just like left liberal or econ or finance discourses mm-hmm. is this real like confusion as to why why insist on MMT I mean I'm I'm going to come at it like a little sideways but I think we're in it I think there's a, t- a couple things one I think money for most people in their daily life is a problem, right? And so there's a a sense of, well, if you center money, are you glorifying this thing that is only good for a few, the way we have things set up, and that for most people is daily pain. But however, because I think, I think part of this moment does have to do with the the Corona crisis where the center of money is just so clear is like a locus of care. And like, we, we need the fed or we need something we need, you know, in Chile, we've, they, you know, have less monetary agency in different ways. Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but, but yeah, it ended up taking out like percentage of your retirement savings, but people need money in the U S I know, like with the, the payments from the fed, I think, or whatever you guys know better, but. It's just that makes made space for people to think about that issue, not just in terms of this, well, money is always going to be this pain, so we have to abolish the pain, as opposed to, well, right now, we absolutely need to get lots of people money. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, like, lean into the taboo more. Yeah, I, I think that it also, what this moment illustrates for people is that things that are happening in the market are not going to pick themselves up except at great human cost. And I think that we're, we're at a point right now where people are pretty sick of hearing about the market. <laughs> and they're, they're pretty sick of hearing about the economy presented to them as a form of physics or in Marxist discourses, right? These kind of material conditions that the left has to adjust to, right? Um, that the left can't shape because the left doesn't have capital, so the left can only respond to the current historical moment. And there's like a dissonance right now between the way that we on the left outside of MMT and outside of some heterodox economic schools conceive of the market as like being a historically specific ensemble of relations of production that is over-determining public agency because it's like this privational accumulation process that then, you know, that that transcends the state and then has power over the state. There's a dissonance between that and like how clear it is right now that the state could be doing so much more to to help people during the coronavirus and that what the state is doing right now is not like debasing a material base that is not able to absorb it, right? Like we're not getting inflation from sending people emergency checks <laughs> in the mail. And we certainly would not be getting inflation from a job guarantee that actually is putting people to work consciously provisioning our collective lives. And I think that our our main issue and critique of not just Marxism, but like critical theory of of like 
fucking everything. Whether they're optimistic or pessimistic about it, they take the liberal idea of markets at their word as being, you know, calculating devices that work either perfectly or imperfectly, but as sort of this like pseudo natural thing. If you're a Marxist, it's nature as history, right? It's like it's natural today, even though it wasn't natural in the past. That's materialism, the accumulation of history and cells. <laughs> right. We're just an accumulation of molecules. Yeah, it's yeah, accumulation as like a, a super biological process that that transcends our individual metabolism, but nevertheless is just like a collective metabolism of humanity and nature and everything that is not historically directed because it has centrifugal forces that overdetermine and guide it in various ways. So, it, you know, in some ways, it's like a kind of a simple intervention that we're making in that we want to say, no, it's not that the market is the only way. It's that we have an ideology that declares the market the only way. And we're not going to get out of that by essentially saying yes and to it and saying that, oh, well, within your naturalized market, we can organize labor against capital and organize those without private property against those who have private property in order to, on this grand scale, redistribute the private property rather than a, a strategy that, that challenges the idea of private property in the first place. Um, actual direct public institutions have devolved their powers and their responsibilities to this ideologically constructed irresponsible actor called capitalists and people who have money and investors and banks and all of these things. And a lot of that we've, we've, we've tread through in, in some other episodes. And I think it's important as we're like really asking again the question, why MMT? Why MMT, mm -hmm. right? Like to really like take that question seriously um, because there are certainly ways to critique reductions of the base like and superstructure logic. There are certainly ways to critique, you know, this emphasis on liberal subjectivity through left theoretical modes. But one thing that I think connects and as you know, as you both have been saying um, uh, like a root problem is, is just like really at its basis point. Like what is the money form for the left? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to actually talk about money? Hegel. Well, <laughs> Natty knows me. But also, I mean, I wanted to back into this a little bit through Marx as well, which is like, you know, you can go to, of course, the commodities and money section of capital volume one and what do you have there right and i'm reading here money appears in the first phase as a solid crystal of value into which the commodity has been transformed but afterwards it dissolves into a mere equivalent form of the commodity right so we have this understanding of the mcm circuit and um and commodities coming into contact and exchange and barter that then get more metamorphosized into money and then back, but to the point where the the monetary form or the numerical form becomes this universal equivalent 
that overshadows yeah. everything. And there's this valorization that happens, right? So that is Marx, right? And of course, there's you, you can go to volume three and find... That's my favorite one. I read that one is it? regularly. Oh, you do? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> there's some really poetic verses in volume three, I have to say. That was like Marx that like keyed into his drunkenness in the way that kind of suits my poetic needs. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so volume three in Marx's schema is about essentially distribution because we have, um, and this is Marx is thinking of himself as critiquing the logics of capital and the logics of capital, even though it begins from this kind of decentered, um, you know, it commodities, like literally begins with people producing for themselves and then, you know, trading those things and, you know, you get commodities um, and commodification, producing goods in order to exchange them for money. That's, you know, volume one is like production, right? Um, volume three, uh, Marx is thinking of as being about what he calls distribution, but really in the, this imagination of like, when capital has become fully universalized, right? We can talk about a global working class that is producing the global surplus, basically. And and then this surplus gets uh, redistributed and sent around in, in all these different ways, whether through uh, finance. Finance capital is the more complicated version of money. The Medici's founded money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're preempting my quote, oh. by the way. I <laughs> need <laughs> um, <Stymied> again. <laughs> <laughs> and and so volume three of Capital, like you're supposed to kind of, you know, take them each in isolation and then kind of put them together and they all are sort of countervailing and bouncing against each other. Um, and you get this kind of contradictory unified picture of money that is being produced, circulated and distributed all simultaneously or sorry, value that is being produced. Yeah. <laughs> the jokes that make our, us laugh. Oh, value. Oh, value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we should silly. have a sitcom called Everybody Loves Value. Um, but <laughs> Val- value uh, and me. Uh. Value and me. Between the value and me. Um, <laughs> this is going to be um, the next Superstructure spinoff. Uh, we're going to have a lot of spinoffs. Just, oh, you, you, think, you think he's kidding. Building the empire. Yeah, there's already one in the pipeline right now. Um, we meant Superstructure. We're just building shit, people. Yeah, It's going to exactly. be a magical adventure labyrinth. By the way, I was reading, I was doing some searching on Twitter for Superstructure, which I do to make myself feel smart and good because, you know, you mm-hmm. get to see stupid people people and that, that's what all the professional podcasters do oh i know yeah, yeah. To our tweets. I, exactly um and and apparently the superstructure is like a technical aspect of a bridge mm. and so like but it's the part that does isn't holding up any of the weight um that's so funny. and so uh <laughs> yeah so we're just decoration on a bridge actually um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the superstructure is also the consumers of the bridge, which are people who walk on it. <laughs> Don't hold anything up. Actually, nope. they're like a drain on it. We we yeah. need to. They're users. We need to only essential bridge users. Yeah, yeah. They're that. negation. They're actually negating the structure. Um, yeah. So like I, the contextualization is of volume three is important, right? Because that's where people go to really to like. Oh, well, like, yeah, there's volume one, which is stupid and like commodity money's wrong. 
historically and mm-hmm. barter and all this stuff. And it assumes all these classical yeah. economic stuff. But then they say, they hold up and they say, well, but volume three is where Marx really gets into the the nuts and bolts of the financial system. Yeah, that's where he starts basically just starts talking about like the most liberal imagination of what banks are mm-hmm. like that you could possibly imagine and then puts that in dialectical conflict with volume one and then we get capitalism. Right. And so I want to read from volume three. You know, people point to volume three as like, this is where Marx is necessary and like still prescient in a way. And I mean, sophisticated people, right, who understand financial systems and and really get how credit systems work and and these sorts of things. But I want to I want to push back a little bit against that by reading a sort of crucial coda that Marx writes in chapter 35, um, which he talks about the monetary system and the credit system because we can see the linkage between, you know, the MCM at the very beginning of volume one and then near to the end of volume three, um, where this leads us and why it's still wrong. And then after I do this, I want to go back to, to Hegel to drive in the nail. But Marx writes that the monetary system is essentially Catholic. The credit system essentially Protestant. Quote, the Scotch hate gold. Um, but so he, he, he continues, as paper, the monetary existence of commodities has a purely social existence. It is faith that brings salvation, faith in money value as the imminent spirit of commodities, faith in the mode of production and its predestined disposition, faith in the individual agents of production as mere personifications of self-valorizing capital. But the credit system is no more emancipated from the monetary system as its basis than Protestantism is from the foundations of Catholicism. So there's a there's a few really crucial things here. One of them, which I'll touch on more in the Hegel, is that as paper, monetary existence, the monetary existence of commodities, it has a purely social existence. What he what he's saying is paper is a representation of commodities. It's pure representation. Right, which is still the barter story. It's imagining a credit system, a Protestant credit system that we could think of as like bubbling out of the commodity production system of Catholicism, which is a totally bonkers imagination, but we'll we'll bracket that question for a later episode on Catholicism. We have such a range. (laughs) Well, this idea of this idea of money value as the imminent spirit of commodities. Like, mm-hmm. this is precisely what we want to push back against, right? This is this conception of a sort of real abstraction, right? Money value represents a, the Hegelian spirit, this representational, abstract, universal form of a commodity. This is still a conception of commodity money. Mm-hmm. It's like Fred Jameson, the representing capital, where he goes through capital like in like the most high-key Hegelian read he can, basically. Yeah, and like the, the actual lineage from this kind of volume one story of as we are all producing commodities to exchange them, money comes out of that, credit money comes out of that because we need essentially to like smooth over gaps in like our schedules basically. And like the logistics of like, Mm -hmm. I produce this thing. I don't, you know, you don't need it yet, but you will in the future. So give me an IOU kind of thing. Um, Imagine saying Protestantism 
reduces transaction costs if <laughs> Catholicism, of Catholicism, like really, like this is the imagination. Less right? waste. We, yeah, you get to hold on to more of God. We we have state of nature. It's very soft. God is so soft. <laughs> no, no. How dare you? God is hard. Uh, God well, is the foul. Maybe soft in the right places and hard uh, okay, in the okay. right places. Okay, okay. I think you're talking <laughs> Just, about nature. Delusion. Organ without bodies, we all vibrate in. Spinosan pantheon. Superstructure is uh, metaphysical fan fiction, but um, <laughs> but um, but like I want to just like quickly spell out like this assumption is state of nature, commodity relations of barter and exchange that then bubble up into commodity money that then bubbles into a credit money that functions as the sort of full the full spiritualization of commodities right but the lineage still starts with barter yeah and so you can't like even if you go all the way deep into volume three it's still fucked it's still completely fucked this is like the dialectical inversion this is what the movement is that commodification creates money which is like a representation of bartering or of real production or whatever, if you're Marx or you're a liberal, like, but then it's a representation and a signification that gets detached and becomes autonomous from what it's representing. Uh, But, but like the metaphysics of it is still that it's imagined to be like a thing, right? Like it's a capital is a thing that gets detached from what it represents it's like and and now there's like global flows of capital precipitation evaporation condensation it's all just so wet um (laughs) all this liquidity is just pouring from the seams it's just so liquid It, it literally is like we made up words in order to make our transactions like easier somehow and then uh, the words detached from the objects that they're describing, and now the words are like controlling us somehow, and we can't afford healthcare. Literally, like that's Marxism. And so, what's the alternative to? Oh wait, no, I should let you do your thing. But I want to hear too after, like, what's the what's the MMT story? What do you guys What do you guys got for us? Yes, we should get to that. But just as an aside, I want to make one point and then move into Hegel. So, and, and like this, this liquid metaphor too, like, you know, like uh-huh. we, we some play out the research that I think we're doing on Twitter amongst ourselves in public, because we believe in transparency, unlike um, some certain left uh, publications that I won't name, um, that we've already That's, named uh, a lot. That's yeah. the In These Times. That's right. We hate <laughs> In These Times specifically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this like question, really the whole liquid precipitation capital as this sort of hovering force of globalized flow, this, you know, we can imagine this like ocean or river uh, kind of encircling all of us. It really is like this mediating lubrication for you pair it all the way back down to like the initial point in this sort of gestalt phenomenology. It's just man and nature. Everything else is just mediating as this sort of lubricating process. And that's just classical economics. It's German philosophy. It's a lot of lubrication talk. It's a lot of lubrication. Apparently German philosophers are like Ben Shapiro. Um, (laughs) They can't get any women excited at all. The lubrication alienates us from nature. Well, then ultimately, ultimately, it's the problem. Then you end up relying on the lube. And it, it's a whole thing. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you can't just masturbate anymore. You yeah. have to always use lube, which means that you have to produce things in order to exchange them with people who have lube. And suddenly the lube begins to control you. And how are you going to do Zoom calls either, you know? <laughs> you can't get out the lube and do a Zoom call. That's no, too much. No, it's not. It's to too much. It's steps. too much. Exactly. Exactly. And so, <laughs> Matthew, because Matthew, we know it, Put that down. It was an honest mistake. It was an honest mistake. Journalists have a hard career. They... Soft. Oh, it's really, it's real hard yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, <laughs> it's okay, honey. Though. It's fine. But <laughs> so, all of that, the fun, you know, meaningful jokes and tangents aside, like I want to go back to the beginning of this gestalt, right? Because to show mm-hmm. how this whole Marx trajectory that we just like quickly spelled out with two sort of bookend quotes about money from Capital. Really, like many Marxists will say that materialism is different than idealism. And we're going to insist on this, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to insist on this. But when you really get into the material analyses that Hegel and Marx make, it's actually not really that different at all, right? Like, what did Marx say? You know, money is the imminent spirit of commodities. Okay, well, if I open Hegel's outlines of the philosophy of right which according to him is his science of the state right that that sounds kind of kind of marxist to me it's a science of the state right and you open to the property section which whew, uh i can highly recommend this is this is some intense fun reading max has more hegel jokes than anyone on earth that's true yeah. i do have <laughs> which means he, he has one or more hegel jokes <laughs> all right come on um So I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage, but then I might, you know, do commentary like the old German way of providing a lecture. Like in Kant's day, they would just read texts and just like add commentary to them. They didn't actually lecture anything. Um, But because they were so, you know, Protestant, which is super cool. We love that. Um, Max trying to explain why he's like this on phone calls. (laughs) I don't have to explain how, why I'm like how i by the way no we're 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 addicted yeah it's it's worth noting that some that some marxists do in like the like uh jules gleason like leans into the hegelian side of that right like she'll say oh well actually yeah like that's true like materialism is basically objective idealism so Mm -hmm. that's interesting that there's totally yeah totally 100 which is interesting because there's marxists who will deny that and ones who are like no we should like be honest about where how deeply that idealistic hegelian thing is the same it's a material ontology of ideas right right? like that's what the spirit of the commodity form like is for marx right is that it's like it's it's a real thing that its signification then becomes another real thing that's killing us yeah and and I, i mean i think you know you hit the nail on the head with material um ontology of ideas. And and what yeah. I want to point out here is that this ontology also like this is just imminence full stop, right? It's this it's this yeah. imminent understanding of a pre-political materiality. Yeah, you want to say really quickly what you mean by imminence just so, I feel like and, that's one of the words that we use a lot. Yeah, so imminence means inhering within, right? As as it's sort of its uh etymological definitional structure but in philosophy it is posited in opposition to transcendence or this sense of a beyond Mm -hmm. and so 
right? You have a, an, an imminent philosophy is one that inheres within our existence, our ontological world. One could call it a material world. And there isn't this sense of a transcendental outside, which is itself a very historically contingent understanding of transcendence. And I would even want to push back against that. But imminence is essentially everything you know <laughs> in political economy or phenomenology. It's, an un, it's, a, it's a, a sort of philosophical mode that seeks to understand our material world as it behaves and as it is. Everything that we look at is self-contained in terms of what of what it is and what it's meaning. Exactly. Is. Like in, in our own version of political economy, you know, when we talk about Fred Lee, Lee doesn't use the word transcendence, but we could say that and a schema of production like you know this thread plus this kind of like sewing skill and machinery equals this kind of product that has transcendent qualities and the transcendent qualities relate to how it is co-present with all the other production schemas right like where is where are all of the inputs being produced mm -hmm. you know how is it relating to this big circular process of production where all of these different parts are analogically participating. Ultimately creation, right? Mm -hmm. So like in this property section of the philosophy of right, Hegel outlines a very similar story of money and I want to, I want to read it to you. So in property, the quantitative character which emerges from the qualitative is value, right? And this, this is this understanding ultimately of for Hegel of property as crucially pre-political, right? Property mm -hmm. is structured around taking possession of a thing, use of a thing, yep. and alienation of a thing. Dominium. I mean, the the right. destruction of a thing, right? And that is what property is. It's about destruction, right? And so mm -hmm. abstraction is destruction, right? Because it's this material force. Um, I just because I was going to smoke really quick, actually. Uh, let me. Also, <laughs> like, you can just smoke. It's fine. You can um, always, always smoke a bong in the middle of uh, recording, honestly. That's just super structured. Okay, I just put, I put it on silent because I didn't I didn't want to, like, have it be like. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we want that. We want that. That's a part of just, like, starts coughing, okay. like, in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> you can be like, see, it's not the bong bro. It's the bong. Jesus, please go on. <laughs> <laughs> It, it hit too good. Anyway, um, so to continue then, like, so the quantitative character that emerges from the qualitative is, is value, yep. right? And this is what's important. We start with qualitative materiality and we have a quantitative that emerges. And this gets spelled out more. Um, here, the qualitative provides the quantity with its quantum and in consequence is as much preserved in the quantity as superseded by it. If we consider the concept of value, we must look on the thing itself only as a sign. Mm -hmm. It counts not as itself, but as what it is worth. A bill of exchange, for instance, does not represent what it really is, paper. It is only a sign of another universal, value. The value of a thing may be very heterogeneous. It depends on need, right? Necessity in the Marxian language. But if you want to express the value of a thing, not in its specificity, but in the abstract, then it is money which expresses this. Money represents any and everything, though since it does not portray the need itself, but, only, but is only a sign of it, it is itself controlled by the specific value of the commodity. 
Money, as something abstract, merely expresses this value. And this is, it's the same thing, right? Money is a a mere expression of value, which is ultimately can be reduced back to necessity, use, and the need and how it it so it socially satiates a circumstance. So what 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 is value? <laughs> Natty, uh, value is is use is is need. Natty literally just ripped a bong and then said, "What is value?" <laughs> That's just my my every hour. It's every just day. my every. I'm just like I'm just so cerebral, and I need to like feel it in my body. Um, but the long and the short of this is, like, this is, a, a again, a Marxist, but more importantly, a liberal understanding of what money is. We start with pre-political state of nature. We start with uh, a pre-political property that is use and, and alienation, which then means money is only an expression of social necessity. And as an expression, it's never possible for it to actually express the value of the thing itself, which means it's an abstraction that ultimately culminates in alienation, which is violence. It's, in, it's inevitably alienating. It's inevitably turbulent. Like, because money is experienced as privation by most people, that's actually nature. So we just need to overthrow nature of the market to return to nature as opposed to like, embracing that money is central to governance. We're not a Hayekian socialist. Like money is queer. Money is not just like one-to-one. Money creates in a different way. And it has Mm -hmm. these governance structures that, yes, we have designed to private most people, but it's different than that conception. Taking like what Max just read back into Marx, like that idea of nature, this is the sleight of hand, right? Is that nature turns into use value because use value is the particularity of everything. And so there's this imagination that there is this irreducibly diverse, essentially just all different ways of like man using nature, right? That, um, that then get mediated by money and then alienated, you know, and money becomes kind of self-referential. But I I think like what we want to push back here against is this idea that there is such thing as a use value that is not socially mediated in the first place. Mm-hmm. That man using nature is not already culturally, linguistically mediated in like the kind of you know imminent mediation sense, but then also is mediated at a distance, right, with like everything else in the world. There was no uh, indigenous people in nature in the Americas living in harmony with nature. In fact, that was a Franciscan aggression. Oh, it was a Mm -hmm. projection that was imposed to make them live in poverty like their monks did while a few uh, Catholic warriors or whatever at the top made money in these weird repressions. Oh, people didn't just live in a state of nature. They governed themselves too. They weren't just innocent Indians. Oh, we projected. And so ultimately what this comes back to, though, is if if ultimately, like metaphysically, ontologically speaking, we are yearning for, lamenting our loss from this, this sense of state of nature propriety, right? Of use and egalitarian social use, right? To be dialectical about it. What that means is there's still this precondition that we are univocally using nature 
And so this is then mm-hmm. what leads to the post-humanist to say human existence itself is alienation. Because, I mean, Hegel spells it out, right? Taking possession, use, alienation, right? We, as existent, alienate nature. And only through our non-existence can nature finally not continue to be alienated. And and so, like, th- we've, we've, trod- we've tread these paths before, and I'd recommend some of our earlier episodes to, to go real and deep in depth about this. But mm. Extinction is the cure. Right. Exactly. And, but this is why, like, to get back to this central question of this episode, why MMT? This is why MMT. Because MMT doesn't start with this story. This is not the story they start with. So as a simple historical anthropological matter, MMT starts with credit and debt as this numerically provisioned process of, you know, whether you want to call it sovereignty, which we wouldn't, whether you want to call it agency, whatever you want to call it, there's this understanding of governance that begins from the point of money primordially and that is why if you're thinking historically if you're thinking about change and transformation you have to your starting point has to be it has to be correct and i think many marxists would be would believe in this but the problem is is that liberal liberal political economy of which marx and Hegel both get their definition of money. It's it's wrong. And so, what's right? What's the true story? Well, I mean, as as to say, like this credit this credit debt story, and as well this state story, which is not to reify the state form. Yeah, we have to start from abstract mediation, and when we say mediation, we mean like there are always conceptual meanings and like markings on things that are Counting. that are inherently social mm-hmm. that mediate our engagement with each other, our conceptualization of those things, the way that we quote unquote use those things. We can't just start with unmediated man using nature who then is like traumatized by barter turning into capitalism. And exactly. And so how does to someone who's super beginner, how would you mm-hmm. say like, what do you mean? Uh, how does credit and debt and this vision of history, what does that mean in terms of you're telling me MMT matters? Like, where does that rubber hit the road for people who are kind of finding their feet? Yeah. So when we talk about things being mediation, it's really important to differentiate between how like people in media studies look at media, right? Mediation, mediums versus how like economics thinks of a medium, right? Like when, when Marxists say, money is a medium of exchange, right? They're, um, or just when economists say that, they're not thinking of money as a, as a prime mover, right? Money is, is a passive thing that is kind of passively mediating and, you know, kind of passively lubricating. For what it's worth, it's also Hegel's understanding of mediation, right? The mediation of force and, and the, the, the middle, you know, that gets termed in in philosophy the the baloney you don't really want it's just like bad (laughs) necessary bad baloney that's right (laughs) yeah Um, but but like it's it's important then to say right like when we are talking about like signification and ideas and and all of these things that in the like common idea of mediation are like passive and not doing anything in fact we have minds, right? Like we think of things 
we create as a first act. And and that's not not to say that we are creating like as man in nature, but just that any form of mediation is created ex nihilo, right? Like from nothing. And what that means is, right, is that like credit comes first. It has to, because credit is literally just the extension of a social relation out of nothing. It doesn't need previous relations of private exchange in order to establish new social relations. No, like our social relations are articulated and they're rearticulated. And if we're talking about uh, quantitatively organizing things, which, you know, unless you're going to take a position against numbers. I hate them, though. It's like one and then there's two and they go on for infinity and it's bad. Um <laughs> Well, we, we we tried to we tried to barter with poems, but eventually somebody just wrote the word gold on a piece oh. of paper, and it was the most useful poem to barter with. I think I think there's a there's a really cool way that we could just flip uh, Marx's volume three articulation on its head, which is to say, it's actually the credit system that is Catholic as a baseline, and then the Protestantism is the privatization, is the reification, is the alienation mm -hmm. of this primordial infrastructural credit system. And so then we get, we get a banking system. And then we get a sort of alienated, decentralized, deferred individual agent Pro, like relational process. So Max, you want us to become you want us to become Catholic and just like be like liberals in power making Catholic money like Famously this podcast um <laughs> has been super nice to Catholics. I think uh we, we did a thing like praising Liz Brunig in the last episode. Big fan. Um, she's she's actually been um, a guest on the podcast. She has. Yeah, yeah, we had her on to Matthew, talk about that, her no. uh not right now. Her her queering of <laughs> Um, homophobia. Queering uh, homophobia. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But which that is that literally? Which is that's say... like that's Marxism, though, right? That's like the socializing private property is like queering homophobia. <laughs> Look, I I said it, so it must be true. Um, but but the point is not to be Catholic, but to see the cathedrals, right? Like you have to look at them and see what they're doing. To then say, okay, how can we reorganize institutionally in ways that reckons with what the processes themselves, the operations are doing? And so like another way to answer the question of like why MMT is it's pretty simple. Like anthropologically, it's correct. You know, Graeber, who, you know, I think I certainly have problems with does get this crucial point right in his myth of barter chapter that mentions neo-chartalism, i.e. MMT, um, which is that credit, you know, well, I'll say debt because he doesn't quite see credit, but debt is something that is a sort of primordial mm -hmm. form, right? And, and we would want to say there's two sides to that. There's two sides of that balance sheet and you need credit first. Um, so that's where we differ with Graeber. But, but point being like, this is not some sort of arbitrary surface level political move that we're making and branding ourselves as an MMT podcast. We actually want to rethink what transformation in history and cultural critique means if you actually get right 
what money is because Marx didn't and Hegel didn't and Kant didn't. And, and as a sort of philosophical bedrock of, of, of the sort of European left tradition, which is not to say there aren't other traditions, and that's important, but the European left tradition is, because of colonialism, is sort of one of the predominant traditions in the world. It's important to understand that that, that is the case and not to shy away from it. Like, it's not like we hate Marxists. It's another way of saying this. Mm-hmm. We do not, right? We share a lot of political, like, strategy and uh, and beliefs and morals with them but it's just they're wrong about this one thing right i think what marxists would want to highlight would they would want to say well you need to recognize the history of violence uh, to quote the, that random movie title i never saw no but they would say well you can't just speak about the state in a vacuum which is literally not what you're doing but they seem to think that sometimes but um <laughs> but uh you have to say no i absolutely understand that the way Exactly, that the Franciscan poverty regime that was installed in colonialism was an assault, right? And that was a privation. And But still, there are, the historical case is the way people have organized themselves is better or worse, right? But it's still money's working the, that way. Yeah, and you can't understand violence, and, violence unless you understand... I mean, and this is a very, this would even accord with Marxists. You can't understand violence unless you understand value, right? But if you misunderstand value, you misunderstand violence. And so th- th- it's crucial to then get back to that root, right? The radical root. Um, you know, if you want to understand historical form, you have to understand the root of by which the analytical apparatus or that theoretical lens, as you always say, like we're always doing theory, um, mm-hmm. is is mediating and filtering the way we identify and then seek to sh- transcend suffering. So that's my long rant. To make this a little bit more concrete, like the main kind of intervention that we want to make as a left MMT podcast is something that is probably most similar to abolitionist discourses, right? And and discourses that say that we need to demand we change everything at once, uh, rather than interpret materialism. And of course, we wouldn't call ourselves materials necessarily, but this kind of interpretation of materialism as like, oh, we're taking history as it is right now. And but th- but then kind of like, using that to pivot towards what's essentially like incrementalism with like, fiery socialist rhetoric, right? Which is that like, we need to seize the means of production one bit at a time. Mm -hmm. And we need to, we will replace prisons with something else. And then we'll replace this with something else. And we'll, you know, and like, kind of keep doing it in this piecemeal way. Abolitionists push back against that and say, no, you have an entire system that's working in tandem with prisons, with policing at all of these other sites that are all circularly implicated in the reproduction of each other, right? And are therefore, as sites, have transcendental violent qualities to them. Even if, a, you know, in a classroom, right, a, a child is not, you know, literally being assaulted. And of course, that does happen, right? Like security guards in schools and like all of these kinds of things. But there are, there are all kinds of ways in which indirectly, schooling and all other parts of our infrastructure are involved with with violent policing and so abolitionists call this out and they say you know basically we can and should demand everything at once 
And Marxism, by contrast, uh, we'll see. And I think this would be a good um, time to pivot to the reading of Vivek Chibber. Its own logics of money being finite and being over there and only being accessible by all of the workers organizing in unity based on a single common denominator, material interest, that's necessarily going to be exclusionary of people who don't fit into that idea of a common denominator interest, who like whose interests are, you know, painted as superfluous, right? Like you think of like queerness and anything that's not white patriarchy, essentially. Um, but also just because the the only agent to use this kind of like very Hegelian, right? Like a thing acting for itself, workers are the agent that disrupts capital. And so they have to act in unity, right? Subject and event. <laughs> so like moving to somebody like Vivek Chibber, you know, who um, in the Jacobin ABCs of Socialism book, uh, his chapter is called Why Do Socialists Talk So Much About Workers? He's going to argue that I'm not a class reductionist in like in the sense of thinking that workers are morally superior to other people. It's just that workers are materially more important <laughs> because workers are the only ones who acting as themselves have agency to do anything. So just to start this, um, most people know that socialists place the working class at the center of their political vision. But why exactly? So also notice the the implicit language, right? Like we have to center somebody, right? We can't do it all at once. So we have to pick an agent, right? And and so he's going to argue that it needs to be the working class and it has to be the working class. Wait, I just I just want to say from, from Marx, faith in the individual agents of production as mere personifications of self-valorizing capital, right? Like that's from volume three, right? So anyway, that speaks to exactly that point. Wait, what's your problem with workers, Will? <laughs> I'm, I'm a grad student. That means I hate workers. Um, so <laughs> when I put this question to students or even to activists, I get a range of answers, but the most common response is a moral one. Socialists think that workers suffer the most under capitalism, making their plight the most important issue to focus on, which of course he's about to destroy with logic by saying that you know, it's not it's not just that I care more about workers' feelings, you you know, dumb woke students. Uh, it's that <laughs> workers are materially positioned to to make change, and therefore we need to do whatever it takes to get all the workers on board. Right? Workers are a family. So I um, love those so much. Families, honestly, Hegel loves them too. So just playing Battleship all night to see if they can win the revolution. You know. All right, Eisenstein. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh um yet there is this is reading a little bit later skipping a paragraph yet there is more to the focus on class than just the moral argument the reason socialists believe that class organizing has to be at the center of a viable political strategy also has to do with two other practical factors right practical a diagnosis of what the sources of injustice are in modern society and a prognosis of what are the best levers for change in a more progressive direction. Levers. <laughs> yeah, right. Workers, you need to, there's only... Maybe you need a trebuchet. Yeah, there, there's actually, there's like a bunch of levers in a room in every factory. And 
Um, one of them says strike, and all the other ones say, like, feminism and identity politics and all those other things. And workers are, you know, they're, like, they're smart in terms of their instincts, but they're stupid in that they sometimes pull the feminism lever. Well, because they can't read, obviously. Like, if they could, if we taught, but if we taught them to read, they wouldn't be workers anymore. So this is the contradiction. Um, right. It's, yeah. But, but you know, the contradiction moves itself through history. Um, so It's like a slave. You know, <laughs> so he continues. Capitalism won't deliver. Is the is the subheading? There are many things that people need to live decent lives. He's about to to talk about the common denominator things, right? That like that that we can build full unity on. Setting aside the prickly things like gender reassignment surgery or you know education nah. about you know, people's pronouns or racism mm. or anything like that. Mm. Like what? Yeah. It's just, yeah, you know, we're busy. May, we're may, busy. Maybe after the <laughs> we don't have time we for can, everything. We can talk about that in art class. I, um, I hate, but I hate Michelle Alexander. Uh, sorry. That just comes out sometimes. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, so this is, this is Max speaking as Vivek Schaber. Um, so, so he says there are many things that people need to live decent lives, uh, but two items are absolutely essential. The first is some guarantee of material security, things like having an income, housing, and basic health care. And the second is being free of social domination. Uh, so one of my favorite things about Vivek Chibber's, like writing style is like when he's like listing in this kind of like scientific language sounding like what are what are let's just talk about like what are the material things that like everybody needs? Well, workers need like a house. They need water. And I, I guess they need milk for their cereal and they need uh, socks in case they need. And it's just like this arbitrary kind of family fun pack. Yeah, right. The family fun pack. Yeah, this is this is the Brunig family. They need to be finished. Just be finished, what, okay? So what is your problem with this? Because, I mean, to people listening at home, they will think, well, yeah, I do want those things. I do want to be provided for. And isn't that nice that we're thinking of? Of the basics. So what's the critique to somebody, you know, you say, what, what am I really getting at? Yeah. So in part, right, the critique is like, listen, again, things like having an income, housing, and basic health care. What is basic health care? Who is basic health care for? Right? Is there a surgery that everybody needs right now? Is there a healthcare operation that is like, you know, I, I suppose he maybe is thinking about, you know, something like, you know, well, you need thing anything that will prevent you from dying is basic healthcare, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and all healthcare above that, right? But like you, you can see how this is, you know, there there is a normative valuation going on here, and and a social valuation. And on top of that, the what I'll say too about the levers of change, right? Mm-hmm. This there's this. And again, going back to there's this understanding that a worker is with the commodity, right? Materially. And so he has privileged access to it. And I'm using he, he very particularly here, because that's what's imagined, right? Um, And so that, of course, you need to go through the worker to change things. But all those things that you just described, income, right, healthcare, housing, whatever you want to say, what is actually the lever, right? It's not that workers aren't also the lever, but it's that money is the agency point, right? The creation of money to provision said goods, said said care, has to be situated as primary 
alongside analogically all the other primary levers. That's why strikes work. That's why appropriations work. That's why Fed protesting at the Fed works. It's because it's all analogically primary. And and so we don't have to choose one or the other because this is not uh, this is not the title of a Kierkegaard book called Either Or, or this is not a dialectical zero-sum Stop. tragedy narrative. That's so rude. Um, I know, I'm pushing on on uh, Natty's uh, soft body points. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, the point being from all of that is is like, to Will's point, there are norm- and on top of that, there are these normative assertions being made that are exclusionary. And so what we want to say is that there is no such thing as materialism, right? Only the normative provisioning through money of a material world. And I think, because also because we're running out of time, I also want to say quickly that um, why MMT, and I'm going to just keep asking this refrain, Mm -hmm. because MMT allows us to see that vision, right? It doesn't mean it's the only thing. Right. And what's but, an example? Yeah. If somebody's a beginner, I know I'm just like pedantic today. I'm like Miss 101. But what if they say, what's an example? What does MMT do? What's the plan? Um. So, I mean, very clearly, like, I mean, the coronavirus is, is very clear. It's, it's pretty clear. Like, how did the government was how was the government able to afford um, printing all this money, quote unquote, or, you know, creating all this new spending to do the CARES Act or, you know, other things that were not as net, even helpful as as the $1,200 checks. Um, Number one, so it's definitional. How come it didn't cause inflation? Because ultimately, that would be a bad infinity, right? It's going to cause inflation. This is what Hen Wood says. (laughs) Baudrillard. This is what Baudrillard says. This is, you know, what... The flying numbers from the left. Right. This is what Derrida would say. Um, And um, so there's those parts of it too. But it's also then this ability to go to the Fed and say, oh, we can actually politicize this lever and say, no, the uh, municipal liquidity fund needs to be structured this way. You need to offer swap lines here and there. You can have this internationalist vision that springs out of it. There's this whole network of advocacy around monetary agency that, that, that springs forth, right? And crucially also, it allows workers to attack the right source, yeah. which is both capital, quote unquote, and the undergirding legal structures that enable capital to be what it is. Beautiful. Yeah, so like Vivek Shiver says at the end here, it is this power to extract real concessions from capital that makes the working class so important for political strategy. So this this idea of extracting concessions, right? Mm-hmm. Like a little bit at, at a time. Um, there's a sense that like, we're not gonna be able to do it all at once because you know, you don't understand power if you think that, you know, you can do it all at once. You need to, you know, do it um, bit by bit. Uh, we say this in the first episode, and it bears repeating, right? Like, as we're in this post-Bernie moment, where the left, you know, such as it is um, in the United States, the institutions that we think of as being the left, but also like what could be the left, they are right now looking around for strategic alliances, right, in order to continue to extract real concessions from capital, uh, which means they're going to make alliances with people who are socially conservative, quote unquote, and, you know, the silent majority. And like, 
all of these things. And what we would say to all of the people who are about to be thrown under the bus, like just to be frank, all of the people who are excluded from the silent majority, from normal people, quote unquote, from all of these dog whistles, is MMT allows you to, to articulate a demand for your humanity on non-zero-sum terms, not on the terms of you who are different than me need to let me tax away some of your space to exist. Because fundamentally, we can have it all at once. Because credit is creative. Yeah. And the actual lever is money, which is infinite. The lever is not finite capital and the finite surplus and like the economic pot or any or bad infinities that you can't control that you can't right. that you can't have agency over mm -hmm. yeah i think that's powerful and that's probably where we should leave it but before we go i'd be remiss to to, to if we didn't tease that we have some uh fun episodes coming um one another one on abolition and then we're gonna do the deep dive into Franciscanism and the Pope's recent encyclical, which uh, Natty has graciously decided to torture herself with. Um, yeah. That's just my favorite thing, so, yeah. <laughs> Lest you think that we're too easy on Catholics, we're about to literally go after the Pope. So. <laughs> and then after that, we're talking countries yeah. and analogies. We're going to have some good guests lined up. And maybe, you never know, maybe some appearances of some of our skits well, and arch yeah enemies, you mean our um, guest callers yeah and also also <laughs> hint, hint, there might be a new more casual show even coming on this feed so look out for that um labyrinths of adventure time that's exactly right
scale of sliding slime. To a fluster of surprise. To a flutter of this surprise. Further anticipation of this chaotic wonder. Origins finally with one loose Yes, I From a flustered surprise to a flustered 